Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, where our job is to help you build visibility, professional credibility, and connection with your ideal client by putting the human at the center of innovative marketing so you can build and strengthen an engaging, enduring relationship with your ideal clients. I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm honored that you're here with me. If you haven't joined our wonderful marketing transformation community yet, go to innovabiz.co and collect your free gift as well. Do subscribe to the show and also leave a review because it helps others find us. Let's get into today's masterclass on this InnovaBuzz podcast. I think one of the biggest things that you can do to be more innovative is think very carefully about the question that you're asking. And even to the point of questioning whether or not you've got the right, I'm going to say problem, and questioning whether or not you do have a problem. And I'm not saying there's not an issue to be solved, but is it a problem or is it an opportunity? And I think there's a huge difference between the way that you think about those two things. And yet we are very trained to come in with this is a problem and define that problem and spend a lot of time defining a problem that by the time you finish defining it is already gone. It's in the past. That's why I think it's a lot of value if you want to be more innovative is to actually start to think about the opportunity and where you're actually wanting to be in the future and focusing that and your energies rather than defining the problem. Welcome back. I hope you've had an awesome week so far. Now, if you haven't yet listened to my recent conversations with Jason Voyevich, author of Marketer-in-Chief, How Each President Sold the American Idea, and with event management expert Sarah Pfeiffer, then do check them out. But stay here, listen to today's conversation first. I'm really excited today to have on the Innova Buzz podcast as my guest, Paulina LaRocca. She's the founder of Creative Catalyst, a science-based creative problem-solving training and innovation consulting company based in Sydney, Australia. She helps companies grow their business by training their people in the science of creative problem-solving and applying the training to real-life business problems to generate innovation. She's worked with global companies like Absolute Vodka, Pernod Ricard Winemakers, there's a theme there, Telstra and Seven West Media. Paulina is also a keynote speaker on creating a culture of innovation and author of three books on innovation, A Catalyst for Creative Thinking, Harnessing Your Emotions to Enhance Your Creativity and The Holy Bible, H-O-L-E-Y, How to Live a More Creatively Enlightened Life. In our conversation, Paulina talked to me about asking powerful questions that invite possibilities. We talked about suspending judgment and challenging our assumptions. And we talked about why dreaming is valuable. Without further ado, then, let's fly into the hive and get the buzz from Paulina LaRocca. Hi, I'm your host, Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm really excited today to welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast from 
nearby really in the big scheme of things um, sydney australia it's the same time zone although it's uh, probably a thousand kilometers away paulina la Roca, who's a creativity author and a trainer welcome to the innovavice podcast paulina it's a real privilege to have you here as my guest wonderful lovely to be here Dr. Catherine Lloyd, who we've just been speaking about, her ears are probably burning. She was our guest on episode 259 and 486 of the Innova Buzz podcast. She introduced us and suggested that we have a conversation. So a big hello to Catherine. Yes, definitely. Now, you're the author of three books on creativity, Catalyst for Creative Thinking, Harnessing Your Emotions to Enhance Your Creativity, and the holy bible how to live a more creatively enlightened life and just for those people that might be wondering that holy is spelt with an e <laughs> <laughs> so i'm really looking forward to exploring all things creativity with you today but before we start talking about those things what's the impact you're having in the world today paulina that's always a very good question the impact that i'm having on the world today Oh, gosh. You know what? I'm very tired today, so I feel like the impact is nil. <laughs> I just ended up facilitating a big session yesterday, so I'm a little bit like, well, the, what the cat dragged in this morning. Or oh, actually, it's yeah. this afternoon. You see, I'm just a little bit out of it. Um, but I think that the impact that I'm having on the world is really about helping people to think. Um, though I specialize in creativity, it's really about helping people to ask better questions and to think more carefully more deeply about their assumptions about the world uh, to help them actually think more deeply and yeah more inquisitively about the world around them mm. yeah i love that um, asking better questions and also challenging assumptions um, having a conversation recently on the podcast to talking about assumptions and there's so many assumptions we make all the time like in five minutes time i'm still going to be breathing as an assumption and yet we're a lot of them we're not even conscious of and so it's always good to start to think about some of those assumptions in the light of is that really correct and what would it mean and what would it mean if that wasn't true um, particularly the things that are bigger and longer term impact yeah, I would definitely agree with you. There's a famous uh, commencement speech. It's probably sometimes it's been billed as the most famous one by a guy called David Foster Wallace, who has since passed away. But he talked about the fact that the value of an education is to learn how to think. And, you know, the whole audience starts to laugh. And he actually says, no, but you don't often think about why you think about things the way that you do. And that's what he was challenging his audience to do. And he told a joke about uh, somebody being lost in the woods. And it was a joke about a bar and one's an atheist and one's a believer and the atheist gets lost in the woods and yeah at the end of it he thinks he's going to die so he actually decides that he prays to god for why not you know he's got nothing to lose and sure mm -hmm. enough two eskimos show up and walk him out of the, the the woods and so the believer is like so you believe and he's like nah man that was two eskimos who just showed up out of nowhere and it's, <laughs> but it's really quite a nice joke in the sense that Oftentimes we think that we question what we believe, but we don't necessarily do it at a very deeper level about why we think the way that we do and some of those impacts and really what sets us up to believe the things that we do. So, yeah, I think those are very interesting questions to ask. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a nice story. Um, one of the things you said there and education teaching us how to think and certainly 
um, going through a traditional education where you're kind of fed a lot of information at school and then in my time it was still very much examinations proper formal examinations right through every school year and it was a case of here's the questions of the examination and there was a right answer and there was a right even even for what might be and we're talking about creativity but we'll get on to that what might be deemed a more creative approach such as writing an essay for example there was still a right way to do it in terms of the framework and in terms of even even to the extent of what opinion you had so if it was a, a question that might have been a religious or political or ethical question of making sure well what you know what does the examiner believe and if i'm controversial will that count against me so all of that didn't really teach us how to think um, and it wasn't until I probably got to university into postgraduate university and I remember uh, still very vividly in the early days of that being feeling like somebody had thrown me into the deep end of the swimming pool with perhaps some some water wings so that I didn't drown but that was all and said okay figure out how to swim and and it was very much like that and I realized in those days that I hadn't really learned how to learn I hadn't really learned how to think I hadn't really learned how to question things and all of that came about in that very short space of time in the later years so I wonder um is you know is creativity something that is being looked at more seriously now in in the education system at, at an early age i mean creativity in its broader sense not just hey you might have a talent for drawing or whatever it is to be honest i don't have kids so i'm not that close particularly in the really kind of the young area of the education system i would hope so sometimes i see out of my corner of the eye that things are changing but overall i would suggest that things are not really changing very greatly um, I think that we have a purpose for education, and some would argue that it is indoctrination. Uh, it is to help us to become good workers and not necessarily to think more generatively. And I don't see, by and large, education really encouraging you to actually have rebellious or different thoughts. And I should caveat rebellious is not in the sake of being rebellious for the sake of it, but actually being able to unpick things and actually play with things and actually bring them out and tease them out and have play with controversial opinions and have that license to actually take opinions that may not actually be the status quo and play with those. And I don't really think that the particularly the younger education status that we have actually does that. And I'm not even so sure that your postgraduate status does that as much as we would like and what we would think. Um, mm -hmm. I know that I certainly struggled with my postgrads. I'm currently doing my doctorate, but I've also done two masters. And I must admit that one of the challenges I've had is I didn't necessarily get good grades on my first master's. It was a master's of management. And one of the reasons why was because I wasn't regurgitating the information. I was actually exploring it and actually yeah. giving what a consolidated thought. And that's just not the way to go. And this actually hurt me because when I went to go for my doctorate, it was like, oh, you didn't do that well. And I'm like, it's kind of ironic. I'm doing a doctorate in creativity. And the fact that I didn't do well in the master's of management is a problem because I was questioning the orthodoxy. You know, and I was actually taking it to a new level and integrating ideas, and that isn't wanted at that level. Mm. Yes, it's uh, interesting. I think, uh, I mean, management 
is one of those topics that can be seen as very structured and, and maybe creativity doesn't play in that. Uh, but I think any time where there's uh, perhaps some structured content and certainly structured course that is examined in a structured way, that kind of plays against creativity, certainly in my mind. Whereas um, uh, my postgraduate year is we had um, research papers that we had to do and then write reports on them. So there was very little structure around that. And we were even able to pick our own topics. And then, of course, I had a um, major thesis, which um, I was able to pick my own topic. And even within the topic, once it was defined, I was able to go in um, different directions. It was very flexible. So there was a lot of creativity that, uh, or creative freedom, let's say, that was involved there that I'd never experienced before. And, and in some ways, kind of, I remember going through um, in the middle of my PhD in chemistry. So for those that don't know, I've got a chemistry degree. Um, asking myself the question, oh, this, you know, who's really going to be interested in this long term? And things aren't working out the way I, I would have liked them to work out. So I had sort of this down period of why am I even doing this? And what value is it to anybody else later on? And in hindsight, very clearly, it was an education for me in terms of how can I be creative? How can I um, be creative in finding solutions to problems that I was facing and also to my mindset in terms of how I was feeling about where I was in that time? So, yeah. It's interesting something that you said there at the start of that, which was talking about the fact that oftentimes Creativity doesn't seem very structured and oftentimes things like management, etc. There is a, a need to actually adhere to structure or protocols as you actually go through it. And I do think that we've done ourselves a disservice by actually separating creative thought and critical thinking and separating them out because I think that people do think that creativity is unstructured. And I personally don't find that businesses have a great love for it. I think they love innovation. They feel much more comfortable with it. It has a, an output that's going to grow the business. But I think they're a little scared of creativity because it's too closely aligned to playfulness um, or playing. Actually, I should say not playfulness, but playing and unstructured thought and a lot of things that they think about as being in recess and not being what serious adults actually do. And true creativity is got to be highly structured in its approach and the way that it comes out for it to actually have an impact. So, yeah, it's a shame sometimes that we actually separate these two forms of thinking when really they are just two sides of the same coin. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember um, having this conversation in, um, in my, during my corporate career where we built a system for product development and the people in the research division said, no, no, we can't have this systematized and we can't have a, this a structure or a framework built around this because that impacts our creativity. And we were having that very conversation with, no, no, the structure and the framework actually will free up your thinking from mundane stuff and enhance your creativity. And, and there's even structures we can build around um, developing creative ideas and so on. Anyway, let's let's take a step back and say, well, how do you define creativity? Well, the standard definition is around novel and useful. So something that's original or something that's unusual and that has some kind of value. Uh, I do not buy into the standard definition. Uh, <laughs> Big creative. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, I think it's problematic. I think it's paradoxical. 
Mm. Uh, and I do think that it's created for a sense to have a meaningful output. And while I understand that, I think we've done ourselves a great disservice by actually talking about things like novel and also talking about things like useful. I think they're very low level. And I don't really understand, and I know why it's happened, but I don't really understand why so many of us actually accept that there's a difference between, you know, creativity and the actually other side of the world, which is actually quite structured. For me, ultimately, and it's a controversial point of view, all thinking is creative. All thinking. Now, I know that some people would argue and some well-known scholars who I respect would say that the challenge with that is then everything becomes creative and then you have a hard time distinguishing different types of thoughts. I still think that you can understand that everything is creative and discriminate amongst the various different levels of energy or thought that you're having. And the reason why that I say that everything is creative is the fact that we are actually, to use a metaphor, streaming information, streaming data, and we are actually taking in sense, sound, our own mental apparatuses, etc. And what we're actually doing is we're creating a story. We're creating a story that actually suits us, that's congruent with what we believe about the world and what we believe about ourselves and what we believe about other people. So we are innate storytellers and we are actually extraordinarily creative with taking this data and actually assigning meaning to it that it doesn't actually have and believing that it is life and death level meaning that you know it can change our lives believing what someone else means when they say x y and z and really being prepared to die on our cross for it is extraordinary and yet those same people might turn around in a different circumstance and say oh yeah no i'm not creative hmm. <laughs> the story of who we are is a creative work of fiction that we are constantly editing, even when we remember events, we remember them from our new selves. So yes, everyone is supremely and powerfully creative, and yet we're not taught to think about our creativity that way. And I think it's really important because I think that there is a moment for questioning the stories that we're telling ourselves and whether or not they really are true or, and or really servicing ourselves. And kind of going all the way back to the beginning, this is why I think when David Foster Wallace was really actually talking about and education teaches you how to think. What he was alluding to was teaches you how to think more deeply about the things that you think you know that you may not really know. Hmm. Yeah, I love that um, analogy or the, the metaphor because we, we do, don't we? We kind of create these stories and our interpretation of all the things that are coming in through our various senses and not only that, we kind of sense. I mean, most of this happens unconsciously, of course, but we synthesize that together. We connect dots. Um, we make up stories around that. Uh, we assign meaning. We attribute motive to how people behave towards us or respond to things we do. And yeah, all of that is kind of a construct within our minds. And it's our own picture of what's going on. And it may be totally removed from reality, whatever that is, uh, but certainly it's creativity. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, I was reading a book two years ago around Christmas time, and I think it's called Don't Sleep, There's Snakes in the Jungle. And he was a Christian missionary who went and lived with an Amazonian tribe to convert them for a period of five years. He ended up actually disavowing Christianity and breaking up with his family who remained Christian missionaries. But he talks about early on in their stay there that they were called down to the riverfront. And as they went down, he grabbed his daughter. And what the villagers were saying is, can you see it? And they were pointing to what they were describing as a man who was hovering, 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 whatever. I can never say that word, hovering over the uh, riverside. 
and was actually giving the village a message. And he kind of looked at his daughter. She looked at him and they were like, no, we don't see anything there. And the villagers were quite confused why they couldn't see something that was as plain as day and hear the message. And they were quite baffled. And he doesn't go into it very deeply in his book. But I actually thought, okay, so my first assumption is, oh, primitive villagers, what would they know? But then I'm like, what the heck? There was a larger majority who were having some kind of experience. Hmm. Who is to say that things that we think are real because we all agree or we see them or we experience them may or may not be actually happening the way that we think it is? And it's irrelevant whether or not this person was there or wasn't there. It goes back to what are your group beliefs as well. And for all we know, it was his inability and the daughter's inability to actually have maybe a spiritual or transcendent experience that didn't enable them to see something that was there. So I think the assumption that there wasn't something there based on our very strict beliefs about how the world operates may or may not be true. And it's actually worth questioning some of those beliefs. Hmm. Yeah, well, it's it, it's kind of, I mean, one of the one of the things that happens is that as we bring in information through all our senses, we kind of filter out things, we delete things, we distort things, and we generalize things to make them easier for our brain to actually process, because otherwise we've got this, I don't know, how I can't remember how many um, million bits of information per second that we're bombarded with, and obviously we can only handle a very small number of those. And the classic example for me is two people go to the same football game and they're supporters of the opposing teams. And so the referee makes a decision about a particular incident and the two people, because they're the supporters of the opposite team, see that decision or that incident, however that happened, in completely opposite ways. So one, one person is saying, oh, the referee made absolutely the right decision there by avoiding a a penalty to my team, uh, whereas the other person's saying that referee must be blind. He's got no idea of the rules of the game, and um, you know that's totally wrong. We can laugh these off, but you know, longer term, they do have quite serious implications mm-hmm. for how we actually live our lives and how we actually feel about the lives that we are living. So, yes, totally agree. And you know, it's a it's a minor thing like a football game, but. Oftentimes in the UK, a football game can end up in a serious brawl afterwards. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, they do actually have consequences. Particularly if alcohol is involved and that um, distorts the creativity somewhat <laughs> more. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, so why is it that most people associate creativity with things like ideas, with things like painting or or writing novels rather than this concept of questioning assumptions and questioning uh, connections and learning and exploring? Well, we can probably thank the advertising men around the 1950s for some of these (laughs) ideas about creativity. So a little bit of history about the word creativity. It didn't exist in the Oxford English Dictionary as late as I think 1932. It might be 34 or 36, but around that period of time is when it first made its entry into the Oxford English Dictionary. Oh, now, it's, oh, a weird... it's a very new term. Yeah, it is, but mm. we don't think about it that way. We think about mm. it, it's been around forever and that this kind of concept of what it is, is actually owned by everybody and we all have the same ideas. The person who's responsible for popularizing the word creativity is a guy called Alfred North Whitehouse. And he was speaking about creativity in a very transcendent way. 
he was a mathematician. He wrote several books and I've had PhDs approach me and say, did you actually understand this book? And I'm like, no. And they're like, phew, me neither. <laughs> um, so his conception of creativity didn't catch on, um, but the actual word did catch on. And what started to happen in the 1950s was the fact that uh, Paul Guilford made a speech at the APA, the American Psychologist Association, calling for the study of creativity. And he defined it very much in the terms of the Americans were getting left behind in the space war. So it was actually igniting fear about the fact that we were getting left behind with technology rather than igniting the possibilities. And so we began with psychologists in the study of creativity. And some of the psychologists that actually led that were influenced by the advertising industry. A guy called, um, uh, oh gosh, Alex Osborne, who is also known as the father of brainstorming, partnered with a man called Sid Parnes. And yes, another thing about Alex Osborne is he is the O in the show Mad Men, B-D-D-O. So he's the actual O in that. And he was interested in creativity and he was interested in it for commercial reasons. And so some of the things as an advertising person that you really liked is the big idea. Mm -hmm. So very much they were fixated on ideas and quick and snappy ideas. And so Sid Parnes was actually in the university and they started to actually pioneer the studies of creativity. Now, these are all very wonderful, but they aren't it for creativity. But unfortunately, this notion of the big idea and ideas being associated with creativity really did take off. And it became almost a divorce in the road from those that were artistic and also struggling, poor, never will succeed. There's some mm -hmm. of the thoughts around this versus business creativity, which is about ideas. And we had the first time that creatives, like the title of creative entered the English language. Like before then you were an industrial designer. Suddenly now you are creative. And I guess the upside was that they popularized a concept and allowed it to come into business and allowed everyone to actually think about their creativity. The downside of it is that they left it, I think, as a very shallow version of creativity if you're only talking about ideas. And they did separate the artistic creativity from the kind of business creativity or deliberate creativity, as it's called. And I think that's a shame because really it is all one concept and there may be different ways of expressing it, but it shouldn't just be about ideas because where do ideas come from? What questions are you actually asking? Those are equally, if not more important. Mm, fascinating, fascinating history. So the... You touched on um, industrial designer there and, and the idea of design thinking, and I'm not sure when that concept came to the fore and came prominent. I mean, obviously the term was coined at some point, but I, I'm guessing that the idea or the process was there before the term was coined to describe it. How do you see design thinking as a framework for creativity in, in this whole context? Um, now, I do know a little bit about design thinking. I, I don't have it to hand and stuff like that. But yes, I think the people who actually popularized design thinking is a design firm called IDEO in the uh, United States. Mm -hmm. And they're responsible for the Apple Mouse because they were Stanford uh, students who actually, yes, went out into their own and did their own consulting firm. So they, they re retained close contact with Stanford and also were introduced to Apple through some of that. Um, I've had the pleasure of actually working with IDEO. And interestingly enough, they kind of own design thinking. Um, but they aren't the owners or the creators of, of design thinking, and nor do they actually claim it, but they do claim specialty around it. Now, they've actually had a person who actually graduated from the Masters of Creativity that I did in Buffalo, and he actually, I think, consulted to IDEO, a guy called Min Basador. He's still around today, and what he actually did was he infected 
them with the creative problem solving process, sometimes called CPS, into design thinking. So when I had the pleasure of working with IDO, they had actually amalgamated two models and they called it design thinking, but very much they were interested in asking the right questions and very much they had a process and a language that was very reflective of the creative problem solving process. And if you look at the two models, what they do is they fill each other's gaps quite well. So where creative problem solving does very well is really interrogating the question, making sure that you are asking the right question. And it makes sense that design thinking doesn't emphasize that because design thinking is primarily for innovation for business. So if I were going to sit down and go, oh, do you really want a mousetrap? Are you really trying to get rid of all mice on the planet? Or what are you trying to do? You might get a little annoyed. You might just go, just build me a better mousetrap. That's what I ask you to do. And I get that. But I think sometimes that we jump to the assumption too quickly in design thinking because you need to be an expert. Now, if you read the experts talking about design thinking, they will actually pick this up and they will say it's not meant to be that simple. But unfortunately, as things get taught over time, the complexity gets left off, left off and the simplicity remains. So design thinking tends to, when it's taught particularly, skip over the question part and jump into relatively quickly user experiences, ideation, experiences, empathy. Where I think the creative problem solving process is weak is it's not a business process. It's not an innovation process. So it has, does less prototyping, less uh, experimenting, and it doesn't really have a formula for working with insights. And insights are incredibly powerful things, whereas design thinking really does think very well about insights, what they are, how they work, and how to get them. So together, the two of them actually make a very powerful model. And I think when you know what you're doing, you don't really need a model at all. It's a bit like when you know where you are, you don't need a map. But where you don't know where you are, actually understanding the full map is actually a very useful thing. And actually having, I guess, one or the other is almost kind of having like a flat Google map and putting the two together gives you the 3D experience. Mm, yeah, great metaphor. And one of the things you mentioned there in terms of um, as as these frameworks get developed and get um, taught, I suppose, is that they lose or people are making assumptions as to what what needs to be in place for the framework to actually work? What's the foundation that they're built upon? And at some point when they're passed um, across different people or departments or whatever it might be, that that foundation is no longer there. The foundation doesn't move with the framework and, and so it's, it kind of loses its effectiveness. What I find is that, and the reason why that IDEO hasn't actually lost that, is you need to be a practitioner. So if you're going to teach these concepts, you need to actually be doing, because when you're doing them, you realize what's working, what's not working, and you're constantly evolving them. And if you go through IDEO's books, they talk about design thinking, but every time they use it and they talk about it, they use it slightly different. And I'm like, because you're a real life practitioner. Yeah, because you're, it's not a formula. It's not a recipe. Mm. It's a bit like saying you're a baker and only knowing how to do brownies. That's only going to get you so far. You need to understand the principles of baking, and then you can actually do croissants and, and everything. Um, and I think what IDO as practitioners, as well as actually understanding the principles behind it, really do use it at a higher level, where they're actually questioning and using it and refining and changing their own thinking about how they go through the process. It's not rigid at all. It constantly flexes for the purpose and for your learning. And I think that, and that's the same with good creative problem solving. You need to be a practitioner if you're going to teach these. I think it's vitally important. Hmm. Okay. You talked earlier about um, 
asking better questions, questioning assumptions, whether they're our own or other people's assumptions that, that you may accept if you're not in the questioning mindset. What, what are some of the things that we can do to be more conscious about questioning assumptions that, that we're making ourselves in our lives or in our work and, and also questioning assumptions that other people might be making in a way that, that's crea uh, constructive and serves us and also asking better questions? Look, it's a key creative principle, but the, it's talking to, I think, deferring judgment. And oftentimes deferring judgment comes up sometimes if people have been exposed, excuse me, if people have been exposed to brainstorming, you'll hear the, the saying, you know, that there are no bad ideas. Well, there are tremendously bad ideas out there. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> there really are. There are bad ideas. But it's how and when you judge them that counts. And it's not that you don't discriminate, but actually deferring judgment, learning to suspend it before we rush ahead and just be a little bit more playful about the assumptions that we're making is very helpful. It also makes us lighter. And I can't physically describe this in some ways or prove this, but I notice that when people stop judging, they just get a little bit lighter. They actually just seem to be a little bit more expansive and a little bit bigger. And it's a nicer place to be. And they're actually just nicer human beings because you can tell that they're not in a rush to judge you. They're actually just being there fully immersed in the experience. And it is a bit like mindfulness. I can tell you how to be mindful, which is to be present. Now, there are books and courses and, you know, monks who have spent, you know, 50, 60 years understanding this principle. It is deep. I can give it to you in two words, but it is very deep. And so is deferring judgment. And it is definitely related to mindfulness. It is much harder to actually do and do well than it is to say. But it is like a muscle in that you do need to actually practice it. And the more that you learn to defer judgment, the easier and more beautiful your life will become. And one of the greatest places to start is to defer judgment of ourselves. We're so busy having a conversation with ourselves about who we are, what we think, why we are the way that we are. Yeah, that we forget that these things aren't necessarily set. And I remember this morning I was uh, putting some things away and I was just thinking about something. And I was thinking, yeah, it's interesting because there are certain things that I will say to describe myself, like I'm bad at math. And I'm not terribly good either, to be fair. But it's interesting over time how that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if you were around somebody else who was truly even worse, it would be hard to find that person, but it does exist. <laughs> you know? And that was more your universe. Would you describe yourself as bad as mass? And I'm like, it's interesting. There's so many labels that we attribute to ourselves, like I'm shy or I don't like X, that actually maybe sometimes we should actually just look at and think about and think, really, is that a choice? Or is that really the way that I'm programmed? And do I have a chance to maybe play with some of that and have a bit more fun or a different outcome? And I think considering things like that, one of the, another one is that I'm shy, yeah, would be quite beneficial because a lot of times other people don't see you that way. So you're yeah. like, so why am I stuck with this label in the first place? So, yeah. Yes. Well, that's interesting. The, I mean, there's a whole, whole conversation around that, but I think the, the idea of suspending judgment of yourself first um, and and letting go of that ego thing. So if somebody else, I mean, we we observe behaviour in other people and we make that mean something, and often we make it mean that person likes me or doesn't like me. And and 
So that, that's the ego, right? Whereas if we suspend that judgment and say, well, let's just enjoy this interaction for what it is. And, and regardless of whether that person likes me or doesn't like me, it doesn't really matter. That's his or her um, issue, not mine. <laughs> and when we get to that point, we're kind of, and you're right, that sort of lightens because we're not worried about what they think of us. Um, the other thing that struck me there is we can say things like, I'm shy. Um, now, I used to say stuff like that about myself. Um, now I reframe that from a language point of view and, and my business coach says, if, if we say something like that, I'm shy. And she says, oh, I'm Joanne. Hello. I'm pleased to meet you, shy. Um, <laughs> it's, it's like we give ourselves that identity and yet shy is... It's a way of being, but it's it's not permanent. It's like I might be feeling shy one day or one particular time. At another time, I might be feeling very outgoing um, and I might be not shy because there's a whole lot of people around that that I can relate to and I can talk to. And so I'm not feeling shy in that moment. That doesn't mean to say that I'm an extrovert or I'm whatever the opposite of shy is that's again it's not that's just how i'm feeling in that moment so i think this um, changing the language there also so i am creative or i'm not creative uh, is is the classic one now i um you mentioned being bad at maths i'm i'm not really good at drawing uh, you know, <laughs> I, I like to say that because i encourage people to draw in in a couple of the exercises that we do I encourage them to draw as kind of an expressive outlet to help get out the information. And I say, don't worry if you can't draw because I, my drawings are the worst stick figures in the world. <laughs> uh, but again, it's it's like differentiating between a skill I might have or not have and an identity that I have. So the identity, I'm not going to let go of my identity, um, whereas if it's a skill that I don't have right now, that's a gap. That's something I can learn. Absolutely. So, yeah, deferring judgment and, yes, being aware of, I guess, some of the things that we think we believe about ourselves and just having fun and examining those is definitely worth it. And it's not to say that everything's up for questioning. Um, like last week we had a Christmas party at work and I work in a co-working space. And, yeah, one of the persons said, oh, Pauline, are you coming tonight to our Christmas party? And I turned around and I said, no, I hate parties. And I do. I genuinely do. And <laughs> It's not up for grabs. I hate parties. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and they <laughs> Oh my God, we have to go. We work here. We wish we were you. <laughs> I get it. And so, yeah, it's a nice way of actually also being able to be honest about some of the things that you do want to remain attached to. <laughs> yes, but you're not making an assumption there. You're, you're being very, um, very conscious of what you're saying. And the other thing you kind of alluded to it earlier is, you know, is this serving me right now? Is is I think a really good question to ask. And when you look at an assumption, okay, I'm making an assumption that, for example, I'm not a really good stick figure drawer, and people probably struggle to recognise my stick figures as actual people <laughs> or representations <laughs> of people. Now that doesn't necessarily serve me when I'm motivated to learn to draw. 
let's say I wanted to become a portrait artist or something, well, that belief uh, would be really bad or that, that um, thinking would be really bad, that assumption. When I'm encouraging people who might be reticent to draw when I ask them to do this exercise that we do, and I, I encourage them and say, look, don't worry about what it looks like. Important is that you know what it represents and that you can then tell a story around that. Um, and don't worry about what it looks like because I know, I mean, you look at my stick figures, they're really bad. So then in that instance, that serves me really well, that, that assumption. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, as we said, it's, it's about being aware of them and thinking about them and being more deliberate in our choices. Hmm. You know, so going back to the beginning of the conversation, it really is hopefully the impact that I'm making is helping people to think, think more deeply about what they're thinking about and making sure that it does serve them. Hmm. Now, you did say something about asking better questions. So what does that mean, better? And you know, what, what's that in relation to? So what are good questions? Good questions invite possibilities. So I use a thing called creative language, which most people to some degree in business are aware of. And, you know, how to, how might we, what might be all the ways might be, you know, common starters that you all have in innovation sessions. And usually what happens, though, is that the question is then ruined to some degree, this beautiful starting point, because usually what we do is we restate the problem or the thing that we're trying to avoid or even worse, the solution. And you lock people in. So you never... Well, I shouldn't say never, but I, I don't often hear in the way that I teach creative language is people actually putting out the benefit, the outcome. What would it be like if the solution actually existed? What would it feel like? And most people are kind of like, oh, but that's kind of an emotional, like we're taught to actually restrate the problem and or give the solution like we're doing the person a favor. So, for example, I mean, I looked at one of IDEO's question that was on their website you know, how might we engage students and parents and the whole community to re-engineer the system so that when they come back to school, they have a better learning experience? It was just so long, so convoluted, and it just actually put in so many caveats, who the audience was, what they should actually receive, what an education was, and it didn't inspire anybody. And it isn't actually thinking about what do you want to occur? How do you want people, not students, not teachers, not parents, how do you want people to feel when they come back on campus to the classroom, so to speak? Do you want them to feel inspired? Do you want them to actually feel like they're diving into the love of learning? Evoke some emotion, some passion about the outcome. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about students or teachers or parents. You can evoke that same feeling, that love of curiosity to awaken the desire to actually open a book and dive into it. That's far more powerful to talk about that. And then if you ask people to ideate around that, you could go forever. You really could. And I don't have to give you one-on-one creativity tools about how to actually have ideas. You naturally start to go there. And what you start to do is you start to open up possibilities. And by even envisioning a school like this, that you might want to dive into the love of learning and whatever words evoke that kind of passion for you, you actually have to go there. You have to kind of think, well, what would that look like? And in essence, when you start to go there in your mind, you start to bring it a little closer to reality because you're entertaining it as a real possibility, even for a couple of minutes. And the brain doesn't distinguish between what is vividly imagined and what is real. That doesn't mean that it doesn't know fact versus fiction. It absolutely does. But it doesn't care from a cognitive perspective 
whether or not this is a physical reality or not. It just doesn't have this constraint that we have about, well, that's real. That's not real. It is imagination. It enjoys actually entertaining possibilities. And when you entertain a really vibrant possibility and you put it as a question rather than a statement, what can happen and you keep feeding it is the brain goes for it 24-7. It starts to put it into your dreams. And a lot of times when you're doing this, you'll get serendipity and you'll meet the right person or you'll have the right thing just come in. And what I like to say is not like the universe going, okay, we're going to give her gifts today. Yeah, it's yeah. like it's always been there. That's it's right. just that you're suddenly more attuned to the opportunities. So those are some of the secrets of asking really beautiful questions. But interestingly, people are kind of afraid to go there. And I think some of it is due to the metaphors that we have about dreaming. They've got their head in the clouds. Oh, they're just a dreamer. We don't encourage dreaming whatsoever. It's seen to be an obnoxious thing. Even the fact that we have a different word for creativity and imagination, we distinguish between those two. And it's like, well, imagination is fanciful creativity. <laughs> it is. And I'm like, see, this is why the problem novel and useful is real problematic. It actually is very problematic as a definition of creativity. And why we distinguish between the two, I have no idea. But it's because we're afraid almost of dreaming and dreaming big and powerfully. But to some degree, I would argue that nothing in the world really actually changes without big, even quote unquote, stupid dreams. I mean, when JFK suggested that we could go to the moon, we didn't even have computers. I think we were working on abacuses. I mean, that's stupid. That's just stupid. But yet, if he hadn't actually have dreamed that, where would we be today? Hmm. So you need to dream these realities. And because JFK asked this question and then basically gave it as a reality to his engineers, they found a way to do it. So asking incredible questions and being giving ourselves the license to dream and allowing ourselves to feed those questions can have profound effects across the world. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And you reminded me, I, I had um, neuroscientist Dr. Fiona Kerr on, on the podcast it's quite some time ago now, but um, one of the things she said to me kind of stuck with me and it was a recommendation during the day to just take time out to look out the window and daydream. And that was part of her process for just getting new ideas or, um, yeah, just um, allowing the mind to kind of go blank, but then have things come up. And in some ways, you know, you mentioned that it's not the universe saying, okay, it's time to, time to let let her have something or let him have something it's just all of a sudden because you're focused on that thing it activates the reticular activation system in the brain and we start to notice those things it's the you know the, the classic example of that is the um the white car so i've taken an interest recently in in this whole movement to electric vehicles and we've got a um we've got a solar system at home with a tesla battery in the garage so i've got the tesla logo there and now i now i'm driving along and every time i see a tesla i point out to my wife this there's another tesla or there's another tesla following us and she said oh that's amazing this they've popped up everywhere in the last couple of weeks and i said no they've always been there it's just i'm noticing them now <laughs> well they haven't always been there but they've been there for quite some i know what you mean yeah <laughs> You know, one of the things that I'm teaching creativity is I talk about squirrels. And I do love it because I was originally born in the state, so I can actually say the word squirrel. Australians can't. <laughs> squirrel? <laughs> <I'm> squirrels. <laughs> 
But yeah, you know, when you're actually having a conversation and you can't help it, you go, oh my God, look at that squirrel. And it's actually a really good thing. So I encourage people to do squirrels because it's kind of a break. It's an incubation moment. And you should sometimes just follow those things. And if nothing else, it's a little bit of a playfulness. playfulness. And it actually just helps the group who've actually been working together to have a bit of a laugh and bond. And it's a beautiful way of encouraging a break and not seeing it as a bad thing. And yes, last week I was having um, one of my PhD conversations and it was with one of the uh, top uh, creativity scholars in the world. And yes, I got called and I can't say his last name, Vlad Glovenu. I believe it's his name's Romanian. But as we were having this conversation, the three of us on VideoCon, he looked up the window and goes, oh my God, that's a really interesting squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't I can't believe it he started to turn his screen going, guys you should check this out i'm going he has no idea this is what i teach but there you go see squirrels they work <laughs> yeah <laughs> mm, i love it yeah squirrels i have to remember that one i know um one of the things that that's used a lot in nlp in various techniques is is the idea of breaking state and getting people sort of you know to kind of remove and clear those thoughts to sort of restart some sort of questioning or thought pattern and and that that's a classic break state type thing <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah yeah all right well speaking of transition let's uh, move on to the buzz which is our innovation round and it's our same five questions i ask of every guest the idea is that it's the lightning round with five questions and you'll give us some insightful answers that will inspire the listener to go and do something awesome today as a result. Cool. Okay, what's the number one thing anyone needs to do to be more innovative? I think one of the biggest things that you can do to be more innovative is think very carefully about the question that you're asking. Hmm. And even to the point of questioning whether or not you've got the right, I'm going to say problem, and questioning whether or not you do have a problem. And I'm not saying there's not an issue to be solved, but is it a problem or is it an opportunity? And I think there's a huge difference between the way that you think about those two things. And yet we are very trained to come in with this is a problem and define that problem and spend a lot of time defining a problem that by the time you finish defining it is already gone. It's in the past. Mm. Hence why I think there's a lot of value if you want to be more innovative is to actually start to think about the opportunity and where you're actually wanting to be in the future and focusing that in your energies rather than defining the problem. Mm. It's interesting. You you reminded me of something. Sometimes when you think of things as a problem, problems ultimately go away in some form or other. And um, the problem I'm thinking of, we had um, we had a leaking tire in the in the rear um, on one of the wheels of our car, our my wife's car, and we kept sort of saying, "Oh, we must go and get that tire replaced or get that tire fixed." And we put it off and put it off. It's just sort of got never got onto the list of high priority things to do. And at some point, for various reasons, um, we find ourselves now selling that car. So no need to fix the tire. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody else can handle that. That's brilliant. Yeah. Exactly. I, I said, isn't it interesting? You know, some some problems, if you just ignore them, they'll go away. <laughs> Very true. Mm. Very true. So it's yeah, it's good good to be clear. Is it a problem or is it an opportunity? Mm. Yeah, and I think most people will say it's a problem, but actually not getting fixated on the problem. And we are very good at defining problems. And it's like by the time you've defined it, do you realize that it's gone? 
It's changed. Yeah. I tell me, we've all agreed that it's already gone anyway. And to deal with it much more as a living thing. So we haven't talked about it in the podcast, but, you know, looking at emergence, looking at it as something that is organic and alive and actually working with it more generatively. So it pays to think about where it's going rather than where it is. And that gives you more scope to move. Mm, wonderful. So what's the best thing you've done to develop new ideas? The best thing I did was doing the Masters of Science in Creative Problem Solving at Buffalo State University. Uh, and I wouldn't necessarily recommend that to everybody, um, but it certainly was a life-changing course for me uh, in giving me permission to actually think differently about things and showing me that higher education could be something that could open up life-changing events for me. So yeah, it, it was an incredible degree. And a lot of the things that I've taught then that I question now, and I still thank every moment that I actually took aside to complement my innovation career with understanding creativity as well. Mm, okay. So the key point there, I think, was a, sort of that permission to think differently. So in terms of a takeaway for everyone is give yourself permission to think differently if you want. Exactly. And I guess some, somebody else who um, once said to me is, you know, if you're going to spend money, spend it investing in yourself because that will never actually be wasted. And I thought, yeah, it's true. You could spend it on big holidays and all of these things to recover from working so hard, or you could start investing in yourself. And that was certainly a case of investing in myself. Hmm. Wonderful. All right. Do you have a favorite resource you use most often? Yes, I would say reframing is the favorite re resource hmm. that I actually use. Um, and oftentimes it comes down to thinking about the metaphors that we're using, how we're using them. Yes often gives us insight into why we think things are quite stuck or inside a certain frame and actually giving us space to reframe it into something bigger. We always exist in some kind of frame in order to make sense of things, but we can change those frames and make it bigger, smaller, gold, less flashy, etc. Mm -hmm. And that's constant reframing. So both physically kind of as a way I gen you know, think about it, um, really kind of helps change the way that we perceive the world, the stories that we're telling ourselves and the opportunities that we see. Mm, yeah, I think reframing is, is my favorite mindset hack. Um, I do it all the time in sense. And, you know, you talked about changing the frame, making it bigger or smaller. I, I like sort of flip it around or just leave the picture there, take the frame and put it somewhere else and stuff like that, you know, really dramatically. And, and it's quite amazing how quick that technique shifts, shifts thinking and shifts your mindset. Absolutely. Mm. All right, what's the best way to keep a client on track? The best way to keep a client on track is to train them up front. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I love it. Yeah, I love it. It's true. I don't think we spend enough time actually talking about training. Um, as Particularly as consultants, we are taught that the client is always right and that we take a brief and that we answer that brief and that we give them what they want. Uh, we don't. They are actually paying us for our expertise, so they need to understand what that expertise can offer them. And that doesn't always mean actually jumping when they say jump. Hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot to be done about training your clients. And I do like to think about people as dogs. And when I teach facilitation training, I actually think people to think about, we are pack animals. <laughs> and if you think about us as dogs, it really helps. And dogs get treated when they do certain things and they don't get treats when they do certain things. And one of the classic is when you're having trouble with somebody, yeah, if it's a puppy, you don't take them and actually, we all know, you don't rub their noses into their mistake and stuff like that. You treat them very gently and you think, okay, you don't have any intent. Uh, you don't assume any intent for why they're doing what they're doing. You just simply curb and correct the behavior and show them what you want. 
And I think that actually working with clients or facilitating people is very much like treating them like a pack of puppies, treating with loving kindness, but showing them that these are the behaviors that you want and this will be rewarded, not just for your sake, but for their sake mm. as well, because you're training them to be a better human full stop. So it works for both of you. Mm, that's great. And doing doing it up front even before they start to work with you is, is a great idea. And I had um, I had a conversation in the last episode actually around a lead magnet that, that could double as the onboarding process or the training process for the client before they start working with you. And I thought, hmm, that's a really interesting idea. I might connect all those dots and see what we can do with that one. <laughs> Very cool. Hmm. All right. And the number one thing anyone can do to differentiate themselves? Well, really, that's a cheerful, uh, excuse me, that is a difficult one because, of course, we are all differentiated. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, I think actually knowing who you are, playing to those strengths and being clear about what you don't do would be very helpful. Mm. I think people often end up in circumstances where they try to promise everything and being super clear about this is what you're good at and this is not what you do and letting people find someone else if it's not what you do. And I think that people respect that. And it's a way of actually putting in boundaries. And it's another way, getting back to your previous question, of starting to train your clients. This is mm. what I can do for you and I can do for you very well. And this is what I simply cannot. Yeah, yeah, that's a really important point. I think the being really clear and, and setting those boundaries of this is, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And that's a really powerful exercise, particularly if you look at, um, let's um, consider doing an uh, an Oh, what's the right word, doing a, an audit on, on the business and let's get really clear on what are the things that we want to do that we're good at, what are the things that we're not good at but perhaps we're doing right now, what are the things that we're doing that we're not enjoying and start to cull those out and be really clear on, no, I don't want to do that work, we're going to focus on this work. Um, that That is a really powerful exercise and is a differentiator. Definitely. Hmm. And I can't remember who to attribute this quote to, but it struck me when, when you first said we're all different, um, is we're all born different, don't die the same. <laughs> Very nice. I haven't heard it. So, yes, yeah. I do enjoy that. Yes. <laughs> it sort of comes back to what we we're talking about at the beginning, this rigid um, education system that kind of locks us into this um, very rigid framework. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks, Paulina. This has been absolutely fabulous. Now, where can people find out more about you, find out about your three books and the work you do, and also perhaps reach out and say thanks for what you shared today? Uh, you can find me on my website, which is paulinalaroca.com. So, yes, and it's an unusual website, so you may enjoy actually jumping on it. Uh, I call it an anti-website. Anti it doesn't try to sell you anything, so to speak, but there are places where you can actually get the three books depending on where you are in the world what would actually work best for you. Excellent. All right. And we'll place a link to, the sh to that in the show notes so that people can click straight through. So is there some parting advice you'd like to leave our listener with today, Paulina? Yes, I think it is to start to practice deferring judgment. Yes, you will judge. That's not a problem. Hmm. But learning how to actually then, from that judgment, suspend it a little bit, be a little bit more playful and question your own thinking and enjoy it in a playful way yes and see what it brings mm, yeah i love it doing questioning your own thinking in a playful way um, is is great 
Um, and that that's very powerful if you can kind of laugh at yourself and say, oh, that's curious, why am I thinking that? Or, or why did I jump to that conclusion? And then play through some scenarios. So love it. All right, finally, Paulina, who else should I get on this show and why? Cool. I'm going to recommend, uh, she's Dutch, so I don't know whether you would want to go international, but this is who Absolutely. comes to mind. Mm. Uh, Agovny, I forget how to say, oh, it's a Rovny actually, it's spelled Agovny, but it's a Rovny, and I don't actually know how to say her last name, but she is a rock star innovator. Um, a hardcore lab is her business, and she's recently been on the Dutch version of the SAS reality TV show, and oh, I think she did well. She is just an athlete as well and a killer athlete and stuff like that. So I think it's promos being played at the moment. I think it goes to air in January. But yes, super athlete, an incredible um, innovator, does it from the heart. And yeah, a good friend, but yeah, an incredible human being. So yes, that's who I'm going to recommend. Excellent. So how do you pronounce her name? Uh, Aravni. Aravni. Okay. We'll, yes. we'll get an introduction to Aravni. Call her Aravni. She will not actually... Um, correct you but we once I, I met her through we did a i did a program called think uh think creative uh, leadership school out of amsterdam and um Agovny was in my class and so of course we she spelled Agovny. we all called her Agovny. and one day we actually as a class exercise got to do a little bit of a play and i noticed she actually said Aravni, and i was like oh and she's like yeah nobody gets it but it was an opportunity to actually show you that yeah <laughs> right uh, i was like oh okay that's actually really good to know hmm. so yeah all right well we'll get you to introduce us to Ravni and um cool. begin that conversation see if we can find some time in her busy schedule between those shows <laughs> to come on the come on the another buzz podcast cool well thanks so much for sharing your time and your insights with us so generously today i've really enjoyed this paulina and um it's been interesting to challenge some of our thinking around creativity and around um, the structures and the definitions we put in that. And I've certainly learned that creativity is, is a term that hasn't been around all that long. And in the big scheme of things, it's something that I wasn't aware of. Um, so I've learned something new and I'm sure that there's lots for the listener to take away from this episode as well. So all the best for the future and let's keep in Thank touch. You. Cool. Thank you. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that insightful and really fun conversation with Paulina and took something away from what she shared with us. As you're listening right now, think about many of the conversations that you have each week. Conversations where you might get opposing points of view from another person at the point of introducing your product, your service, your ideas, and you might face objection or resistance as to why they wouldn't move forward. Or you might get ideas which you simply don't like or think will not work. Do a little bit of reflection and preparation right now as you think about those conversations to identify some questions that invite possibilities. Think about challenging your own assumptions first. Then, in those conversations, suspend judgment. Ask those questions that fit the situation and listen. Listen carefully. Some of those questions might be like, I'm curious. 
Why do you think that? And explore that some more, suspending judgment. Imagine if just one new possibility opened up. How would that impact your business and your life? Paulina's episode can be found at innovabiz.co forward slash Paulina LaRocca. That is P-A-U-L-I-N-A-L-A-R-O-C-C-A. All lowercase, all one word, innovabiz.co forward slash Paulina LaRocca. You'll also find contact information for getting in touch with Paulina there, as well as links to her website, her social media pages, and the other resources we spoke about in our conversation. Now, if you've listened this far into the show, I'd like to challenge you. If you've loved this conversation and you think it'd be useful to one other person, be brave enough to share the conversation with that one other person. And I'm convinced that in whatever other episodes that we've published right up till now, there's at least one other in there that is equally as valuable to you as this episode. So go ahead, pick your favourite number, or maybe just take a 30-second glance through the past episodes, and between now and the next episode, listen to one more. And then I want you to write me a note on LinkedIn about which episode you picked, why you picked that episode, and what your biggest takeaway was. I promise I'll respond And we'll have a little conversation on social media. That's what it's all about. Paulina suggested that we have a conversation with Aravni Jesayan of Hardcore Lab on a future InnovaBuzz podcast episode. So Aravni, keep an eye on your inbox for an invitation from us to the InnovaBuzz podcast, courtesy of Paulina Aroka. Thanks for listening. We'd love you to leave a review on this episode so that we can get to know you and why you listen. Also, it will help us make the podcast even better for you. Simply go to lovethepodcast.com forward slash InnovaBuzz to pick your preferred platform. And you can follow the show by going to followthepodcast.com forward slash InnovaBuzz. If you'd like a peek behind the curtain into how we put together this show, go to innovabuzz.co forward slash flywheel, where you can access a free gift my team and I made for you, a short audio program that walks you through the entire InnovaBuzz flywheel. We want to give you everything you need to transform your marketing and your podcast into a human-centered, relationship-focused growth engine. Tune in again to the next episodes of the InnovaBuzz podcast, where we've got yet more fantastic guests lined up. Until next time, I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz. Remember, be awesome and keep innovating.